All right, welcome back to the Free Lunch Podcast, back again uh, with a new guest, uh, somebody who I've known for quite some time and somebody who's had different aspirations in, in the political space, and he's an organizer at the moment, and he's a student as well. And if you don't mind introducing yourself, Mark. Uh, hello, all. Hello, y'all. <laughs> My name is Mark Steven. I'm a student at HCC Howard Community College currently um, trying to transfer to university to the University of Maryland College Park um, by fall 2021. Um, I'm involved with a couple organizations right now, including the Columbia Democratic Club um, and a couple campaigns um, like Richard, Richard Elliott for Maryland, uh, District 24 in the Maryland General Assembly. Um, you know, I'm just a student trying to find out, you know, where my political views stand and you know how i can uh, help people so i guess to start um can you just talk about uh what what sort of got you to this point because i remember in high school you used to you you told me you gave me a little a little hint of your your aspirations when it came to politics and you even mentioned uh, at some point you wanted to be a president of the united states and i guess with what we went through last year, um, what was that experience like sort of moving you more, a little bit more to the left and, and, and I guess making you more urgent for for like political action and the, the stuff that you do now? Right, um, you know, I, I would say that, you know, during high school, I was, even though I did want to say I was well-versed in, you know, the political landscape of things, you know, you know, I, I took AP government, political science, all the classes that, you know, these poli-sci nerds want to say, you know, that use as a, uh, a credit to their political, you know, knowledge. It's not, you don't really know what goes on until you're really like knee deep in it. You know, um, in, in my senior year of high school, I was fairly liberal. Um, you know, I, I didn't really understand what go what goes on with the u.s ventures abroad I, my main focus was these small district races for house you know house of the representatives you know house of representative seats things like that so my my uh my sphere of like knowledge wasn't really that large um <clears throat> then i started getting into um you know <laughs> further left politics and that really kind of started with uh, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez getting uh, her seat in 2019 in the 20, 2018 midterm elections that was my first introduction to left politics in the United States um, specifically democratic socialism um, and that for uh, that moved further to the left with um, Bernie Sanders um, presidential run in 2019 2020 um, and where I'm at right now, it has pretty much been a uh, compilation or like a uh, summation of all of those um, people and their campaigns and their policies combined in one. But um, I think where I'm at specifically right now is because of what happened, you know, during the pandemic, um, you know, in the Democratic primaries, um, you know, and what we have right now, essentially, that's that's why. I'm a little bit, not a little bit, I'm on the left right now is because, uh, you know, you, you can't really get 
um, too satisfied with the status quo when it comes to the United States because, you know, for other countries, they have the excuse of not having enough money, not having the infrastructure, the um, population base, the diversity to do sorts of things. But, you know what I'm saying? We don't have that excuse in this country. And, like, it's it's not too much to ask of your of your politicians who are every representatives who are supposed to represent your feelings that you know, maybe you should actually just do your job and um, you know be the voice of the people for once. Um, you know, I think that's that's where I'm at right now. I mean, uh, if if we if you if you could give me a follow up question just to talk specifically because I don't want to go rambling on about. Sure, like I. I was just mainly curious, um, and it's fine if you want to ramble. Like I, I'm totally because I'm a I'm a little I'm I'm a little uninformed on this, and I'm I've always been curious about this stuff, especially since um, with what we went through back in June. Um, but I'm I'm just curious. Like, would you after Bernie and after all that, and you said you went sort of beyond, or um, under yeah. from my understanding, you went beyond democratic socialism and. So would you call yourself like a leftist or a socialist or what would you, because I know like with, um, yeah. especially with people on the left, they, there's a tendency to give themselves titles. And I'm, I'm curious what your, your right. thoughts are about that. So, yeah. So on the left, it's really, it's really down to what your more or what your like fundamental beliefs are for a lot of people. Um, they they use um terms like marxist um marxist leninist um maybe like even like maoist um referring to mao zedong or like uh you know you don't really see those but um you see terms uh yeah i see like, a lot of mls anar- and and yeah, yeah, anarcho syndicalists yeah. and right. anarcho syndicalism um anarcho communism you know these are terms that you know they're all on the left um, but it's hard, you know, for, from, a, from a vantage point of view, just from like far back, you don't really understand the difference. But there are like multiple nuances, right, um, within them. Uh, you have Marxists who, at their worst, they can just, they can only view things on like, uh, from class differences, like points of view. So they don't really like understand the full um, context of like how race plays a factor and you know um, Carlos Karl Marx never understood that um, well because yeah, he was a white man from Germany he never understood yeah. he, he, he took interest in the um, oppression of slaves in the United States and Haiti um, you know in the 1800s but that was the furthest it goes you know there was a story about um about Karl Marx and Abraham Lincoln being pen pals um, you know trading messages during the Civil War because Karl Marx was interested in um, how, um, how, how the U.S. would essentially like pay reparations to these newly freed slaves. Um, unfortunately, like I, we all know that you know, uh, slave freed slaves were never given the, um, you know, freedoms and liberties that they deserved. But um, it, Marxists essentially, they don't really, uh, at their worst, they can only take things from a class point of view, and for, at their best. They can, you know, be um, it can be used as a blanket term to kind of represent a lot of people on the left, which are trying to restructure the economy based on, you know, uh, get, uh, re, you know, redistributing the means of production to the working class. I also think, 
if you don't mind me interrupting, I also think like mm-hmm. I've also found like Marxists and people who like title them like Marxist Leninists, they tend to be more dogmatic in the way they um in terms of those texts that those two guys have written. They've the way they sort of venerate them as individuals and um the way they interpret the text is almost as if it's like a a holy text or if it's like bible bible worthy they don't they don't really like interpret the theory that's being you know uh put out you know what i'm saying like and it's sort of right right they the stuff that they wrote is obviously like stuff that's like 200 years old and they're not really interpreting it as something that right. exists in this time so yeah you can go ahead now mm-hmm. uh, so like I, I just want to put in uh, like a point like um, that that was a very good point you brought up because uh, I'm actually heavily invested in like not heavily invested but invested in like a side of TikTok that is like all about politics and things like that. And you know you have a lot of people that uh, essentially they they narrow down their their um, their points of view on leftism to a theory a theory only you know a sense of like um, leftism which is wrong in and of itself. There's a thing called um, praxis, right? Praxis is when you use theory to inform yourself but you use um real life um experiences to back those up you know and, and give yourself um uh, like use that theory to work you know what I'm saying? um and those may come in through um like things like mutual aid networks which um bypass which are uh anarcho-communist kind of in and of itself because it relies on you know what I'm saying, individuals grouping together and um feeding the uh, feeding and helping the local communities and not relying on a government not relying on a state just um organizing you know and organizing 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 that's what they're focused on um so using uh like a lot of people now are trying to um talk about theory and theory only spewing these 200 year old words by these white men you know what i'm saying that never really understood the full grasp of race as we do today and of how um you know, liberation movements like Black liberation, um, you know, and uh, Palestinian liberation, things like that, you know, they, they never really understood that back then, but we kind of do now. So um, these these terms like Marxist-Leninist, which I want to define next, is kind of, they're more revolutionary and, uh, you know, in their, in their definitions and in their viewpoints. Um, those Marxist Leninists can, uh, like types of Marxist Leninists that have, that have existed are the, um, like fam- most famously the Black Panther Party, um, who took up revolutionary um, measures like um, uh, policing the police with guns, AR-15s, defending their own, uh, their own in, um, in their chapters, uh, you know, having a free breakfast lunch program or free breakfast program and uh, medical clinics for the local communities. These are, these are the sorts of, um, the sorts of uh, tactics, not tactics, but uh, strategies that they use to make sure that their um, uh, their communities could be uh, well served. So um, that is one um, one term that uh, a lot of leftists uh, seem to go under. And the other ones like Maoists and Stalinists, they seem to like sort of um, worship Mao Zedong and uh, Joseph Stalin mainly only for the fact that they were powerful left figures. Um, but they tend to gloss over like the you know patterns of abuse and that, that they that they brought upon people. But at the same time, um, what I want to like what I've what I've been trying to un unteach myself is the 
you know, anti-communist uh, propaganda that has been taught to us, you know, um, through the U.S. education system. You know, I, I wouldn't consider myself a Maoist or a Stalinist, but um, it would be foolish to think that the United States, um, you know, is teaching us everything as accurately as they could be uh, when it comes to uh, left figures like Che Guevara, like um, Fidel Castro, like uh, Nelson Mandela, like all these sorts of things. You know, you have these these figures like Nelson. Nelson, Nelson Mandela is one figure I want to talk about specifically because he was a revolutionary left figure that has now been looked over as a largely liberal um, figure, you know, uh, yeah. because he used peaceful means of um, revolution in South Africa. And you, you, you kind of see these watered down versions of figures like Martin Luther King, um, Malcolm X even is now getting his turn of watering down, even after decades of liberals um, berating Malcolm X because of his uh, terminology and his verbiage on on white liberals specifically um you know it it's it, it's a thing that history does to these um, revolutionary figures over time they tend to just water them down whitewash them uh do all they can to make sure that um people aren't radicalized even more by these figures which is you know it's messed up but it's what the u.s has done i mean it's it's a part of the learning that like everybody on the left has to go through at some point. And yeah. Yeah. It's definitely something like, obviously Martin Luther King was a socialist. I didn't know that until last year. Um, (laughs) The stuff, the stuff that I was taught about Martin Luther King and Emma and and Malcolm X is sort of, they were polar opposites in in terms of the way um, they went about activism and, Though that, in a way, is kind of true. I mean, it's it's still inaccurate to you know frame Malcolm X as somebody who was purely interested interested in violence um, as a means of, as a means to an end. Um, but I guess to that, um, what what radicalized you in in the sense that was there a moment in high school that um sort of turned your interest towards um more um further left values or what was what was the because you talked about ASC can you talk about like that more specifically was it watching these people speak and yeah right um yeah so I want to yeah what really what really pushed me even further to the left not even further to the left but like past the liberal stage of my life was the you know election of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in New York, um, because that was the first time I had seen, um, because uh, you have to think about it in, from a like a larger point of view. Her, her, um, her opponent in that um, district was a 14-term representative who was the second man to Nancy Pelosi in the House of Representatives. So basically, that would mean that if right now, if Nancy, since Nancy Pelosi is House Speaker, he would be the runner-up basically if Nancy Pelosi were retired today he would be the next in line to be house speaker and you never heard you didn't hear about AOC from any major news um media you know uh, uh, any news media corporation um but it didn't matter you know what I'm saying because she didn't need the big lights on CNN or Fox News or anything like that she was organizing in that community you know what I'm saying she was brought up in Queens and 
uh, in the Bronx. Uh, that's where she organized. She brought together so many people of color, um, you know, Latinx people, um, African-American people in that area. Um, and just reading about this book, I, I want to bring it up right now. It's, it's written by Ryan Grimm, who is a, um, who is a, uh, he, he's like a, a, a journalist for The Intercept, and um, he was the Washington, D.C. Bureau for Huff Post, Huffington Post, and The Intercept. The Intercept is a good, um, you know, left-leaning um, news publication uh, based out of D.C. He wrote a book in 2019 um, that my brother actually let me read um, when I visited for the summer, um, or visited for, uh, I think, winter, winter break 2019 before the pandemic. It's called We've Got People. And it essentially talked about, you know, from Jesse Jackson, Reverend Jesse Jackson's uh, campaign against, uh, during Ronald Reagan's uh, campaign for presidency down to uh, AOC and Bernie Sanders right now. And it talked about the organizing and the uh, coalition building that happened uh, between those um, between those time periods where the left was the left was shattered during Ronald Reagan's era, um, and even post Ronald Reagan, unions unions went from union membership went from like around seventy percent to now it's eleven percent today, which is you know when you think about it, it's just it's it's actually mind boggling, but it's like. Um, it, the book really like went in depth on how to organize, how to spot a good candidate that has good morals and policies and things like that. That was that even then like was just like a wake up call for me because like I I never really understood that side of the political spectrum and it, it was really hard to like even get that sort of material in your head as like a high schooler because I mean <laughs> I'm be honest like I didn't really like. I didn't really put that much time and effort if it wasn't for school, you know what I'm saying? I'm like, if it wasn't for AP Gov or like AP political science or something, I wasn't gonna do, like go the extra mile to go research these left-wing candidates. But, you know, that book, that can that election and candidacy really like pushed me for the left to think that, hey, like maybe there are people that actually wanna do good. People that are just like me and you that can, you know, come from, from uh, humble means, humble beginnings and, you know, uh, be who she is today, which is a, you know, one of the loudest, not loudest, but one of the most powerful figures, you know, in American politics right now. Yeah. And obviously she has gotten to this point with her and the squad and like the Cory Bushes and who's the other mm -hmm. guy? Um, yeah. Those people. Jamal Bowman, yeah. yeah, Jamal Bowman, all those guys and sort of my my experience of watching these people is obviously on social media and i think that's where afc has made a lot of obviously made done a lot of work in in radicalizing people um afc in particular her being young and having that appeal of um a a rather humble upbringing as you just mentioned and um you know going through what she had to go through and, and now she's so vocal and outspoken and it's gotten to the point mm -hmm. to where she's even on on Twitter, especially is where I see her the most and where I've learned the most about her um, and, and the rest of the squad as well. And I feel like the discourse now has, especially with Biden's presidency and um, this this new, obviously, this new liberal administration that he's brought in, I feel like the way the left on online has has interacted with her and the squad it's just it's gotten a little bit 
you can I feel like I can feel like the disdain that they have for her in particular and people for some reason they they I feel like they're getting tired of her and it her and the squad and it just it's disappointing because I don't know but I, I don't know you know you know what I mean have you noticed that on yeah, Twitter yeah I've definitely yeah like uh about how she like tweets out you know uh, initiatives that the government needs to take and then people are like you're a congresswoman why don't you just do it yeah um, yeah, yeah exactly I, I, yeah i definitely know what you're talking about yeah. and it's sort of like and it's the same thing with bernie as uh, a lot of black leftists online and just the online left is sort of um all this talk about incrementalism and if you're not really talking about revolution now or you're not you know ready to do some wild shit and change the world in a matter of seconds you're just you're not really for their movement or you're not really for progress and it's it's sort of it's frustrating because it's like what's the other option here like you if when you're a politician you have to work under the purview of um the united states process you have to go through those processes like bernie didn't get the way he get to the point he got without being a little bit you know without making some compromises here and there obviously mm-hmm. and it's it's right. it's sort of frustrating to see these people you know talking about like oh well you should do it right now and it's like i don't think they understand how how hard it is with the way the democratic party is structured right now and the people who are leading it at the moment That's and true. and obviously with corporate interests that are playing a part as well that we haven't even talked about um but yeah that that's that's just one thing that frustrates me is just the online left in general and the way the way they 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 interact with these politicians and it just seems like it's cool now to be a contrarian and sort of just be sort of just i don't know just so antagonistic towards the so democratic cool, party yeah. Even if even if it means like cheering on the Republican Party or even conservatives, that it's just it's it's sort of just turned on to uh, yeah. I, I get where you're, I get what you're saying um, about the you know cynical nature of the online left, but at the same time you kind of have to uh, step back and realize that, like uh, I I did this I kind of um, had to analyze myself after the Bernie. Sanders campaign, um, you know, collapsed in on itself after the pandemic began. I, you kind of got to realize that like the online left isn't what it isn't representative of the left movement um, in America, period, because a lot of <laughs> a lot of working class people are um, have left morals, they have left leaning morals and values in regard to economics, but they just don't kind of realize it yet. You know, it not everybody has the gift of taking time to, you know, read theory and radicalize themselves. They just, they go through every single day um, as working class people, whether they be teachers, nurses, firefighters, like these types of people who are in these, um, these jobs, like they, they don't know, I'm not gonna say they don't know, but they don't really have the time or the, the, the energy to just spend on radicalizing, organizing and things of that nature. But, you know, the online left has its benefits in that it can reach sectors of the country where, you know, you can't just do that with pure organizing. You have to have some sort of online 
um, dates or online, um, you know, interactions. And I understand that like not everybody's going to be on the same page when it comes to the Democratic Party with um, the squad. Um, you know, I, I get I get the criticisms of AOC of the squad about how they're they're they're, they're screaming at the top of their lungs. You know, at the at the top, at the highest building of what needs to happen in this country for progress to actually happen. You know, and then you have the you know the smart Alex in the comments saying, "Well, why don't you just do it?" I mean, you know, it's really you you may think that you know these these politicians have more power than they actually do, but the ones with the actual power are the people filling these politicians like pocketbooks. Those are the ones with the real power. Yeah. And, and in the in the U.S. specifically, it's just it's hard to look away from that fact. You know, if you yeah. don't have these um, these corporations in your back pocket, your voice isn't going to be as loud. And you know. Uh, I feel like it can tie just in the race as well. You know, the squad is largely people of color in Congress specifically. It just seems like people of color are not valued. You know, Reverend Raphael Warnock was one of the first African American. I think he's one of the only African American senators at, because Kamala Harris is the vice president now. You know, and it's just insane to think that out of a hundred senators that is representative of the fifty states, one is African American. I mean, it's just. Oh, no, 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 sorry. Uh, Raphael Warnock and Cory Booker from New Jersey. But um, it's, it's that sort of thing um, that diminishes um, people of color's voices in Congress. You know, it's really hard to coalition build when um, you're getting punched from the right, uh, from the conservatives and from liberals, specifically I'm talking about the squad, because it's just hard to take punches from liberals and conservatives and still try to get your message across. Um, and, and also while also getting the cynics from further left, you know, to, to your left too, you know, cause you have the, you know, the people that want to just criticize to, to, to no end basically. But, um, history yeah. will look back at people like, you know, Bernie Sanders with, uh, like in, in a good regard based on how, how they try to just advocate for things that we should have already had, you know, instead of having a plumped up military budget, maybe we can pay for our kids to go to college you know maybe we can pay for everybody to have affordable health care and free health care at, at the point of service it's just maybe. these sorts of things yeah. <laughs> like uh. yeah yeah for sure and you even with that with bernie like climate change as well is something that you could have mentioned um and you mentioned lobbies uh, and just corporations in general i don't think i think i one of the real awakening moments for me in the past um, year when I sort of started to get into this politics stuff, um, it was definitely the influence of corporations and the way they play a role in elections. And obviously in the past, I don't know, I, I remember seeing a stat somewhere, but um, there were at least in a past handful of presidential elections, the, the victor was basically decided by, by who got the most um, campaign donors and the most money, um, right. which is incredible when you when you consider like like where <laughs> how much money first of all how much money corporations have to be able to just pump in money into in politics and basically decide the fate of hundreds of thousands of people <laughs> and um, I, I I was curious on on your thoughts with that and 
because a lot of people, especially with what we saw with Amazon and and the whole union situation and how that was supposed to be a big triumphant moment for workers' rights if they had um, if they had won um, those those guys down in Alabama if they had won and it sort of um, it folded uh, because again corporations just have this incredible power that I don't think really people um, have have been able to quantify and people really really understand at the moment it's sort of more of a focus on the politicians when they're, they're guys who are lining these dudes pockets yeah uh, absolutely i mean you kind of uh like the way that i understood it was that you kind of you got to think of campaign contributions which um really took a turn for the worst in 2010 you know there was a supreme court case uh, citizens united versus the united states which essentially meant or essentially allowed corporations to be labeled as individuals where corporations could be uh, were able to uh, give contributions up to thirty five hundred dollars um, to these uh, to these politicians, right? Um, and also that that went uh, that went on top of um, super PACs. Super PACs, super uh, PACs were lined by corporations filled with millions of dollars for these politicians to use in their campaigns. You know, I mean, you had what Beto O'Rourke lose to Ted Cruz after having a billion dollars at his disposal. You had um, uh, Amy McGrath uh, going against Mitch McConnell for the Senate race in Kentucky, who was a way worse candidate than Charles Booker, uh, a, a left-leaning, um, I think, uh, House delegate in Kentucky. He lost to Amy McGrath just by a sliver, um, but she had up to like I don't know, five hundred million dollars and could barely crack I don't know, thirty percent of the vote. It, these contributions, whether they're from the right or the left, like we know about the right, we know about where they get their money from. Uh, we know that they get it from oil companies, from healthcare companies. You know, we we know that. But at the same time, you gotta look at, at uh, Democrats as well. You gotta place, uh, you know, a fair share of blame on both sides, because that's the only way you're gonna get um, change. Because if you just go after Republicans, they're gonna pull the hypocrisy card, you know, and they're gonna list their stats on Democrats that do the same thing. You know, and, and when you really look at these campaign contributions, you can just uh, take out the word campaign contributions and just think of them as bribes. Think we're in like an, a mafia ridden, like 1940s type um, political system where, you know, these mafiosos are giving politicians, what, thousands of bucks to, to make sure that they've turned a blind eye. And that's what's happening. You know what I'm saying? Uh, you have the mafiosos in the oil companies paying politicians to turn a blind eye and not put forth real climate change legislation like the Green New Deal, like reducing carbon emissions by a certain set amount of years, like um, like putting like locking up these executives who knew about the effects of, of climate change and the pollutants in the atmosphere since the 1960s and did nothing to uh, to combat that because they just thought that you know, that was going to cut into their profits if they transitioned to electricity or anything like that. You know, these sorts of things, it's just, it's not possible in the, in the U.S. political system we have right now. You know, after the recession of 2008, a lot of people went into Obama's presidency thinking he was going to be the, the one to fix it, to jail these bankers that let millions of, of U.S. citizens, of, of homeowners, lose their homes, go into bankruptcy, 
um, become unemployed after the recession, during the recession. And that just didn't happen. You know, no banker, I think one banker was jailed that had no correlation to the recession. Uh, I think the one thing that happened was what it was Glass-Steagall was a, uh, was an act uh, made by, um, Glass-Steagall was, Glass-Steagall was FDR. And then um, I forgot the other, the other name, uh, Glass-Steagall kind of separated commercial and investment banking. And then it was like, uh, Dodd, yeah, Dodd-Frank, yeah, Dodd-Frank Act. That one was created by Obama. That one, that one was the major legislation that he pushed in um, before the midterm elections in 2010. And, you know, it was kind of like a watered-down version of Glass-Steagall, but that was his main, um, that was kind of his, uh, his final stand against the bankers because, as we all know, during the 2010 midterms, he lost, or the Democrats lost the Senate and we were in a what a, a six-year um, gridlock with Republicans in the House and the Senate, and like basically nothing got done. But um, like, uh, it's really it's really hard to just like like you said, it's hard to quantify how much power these corporations have on politicians um, until you realize how much money is getting circulated through these elections. Uh, once you start thinking of campaign contributions as bribes. Like only then can you realize the amount of sheer power that um, you know these these industries have basically. And uh, like you, Paul, I, I want to talk about um, the Bessemer, uh, Bessemer, Alabama, Amazon uh, unionization vote. Um, you know they lost um, they lost the unionization vote. Um, however, they are um, appealing to the National Labor Relations Board because um, there were things such as like voter intimidation, uh, you know, everywhere they went inside that Amazon fulfillment center, there were posters saying that unions were gonna take your wages, unions were gonna do this and that. They were essentially scaring and intimidating all of these workers to vote no on unionization. Um, and I mean, like, it's, it's really crazy, like how, how, these, uh, <laughs> how these corporations really just treat their workers in, in broad daylight. I mean, like there are so many stories talking about how these workers have to pee in bottles because they can't take bathroom breaks because um, they have to continue meeting quotas and things like it's, it's literally just like modern day sweatshops in like a, in a modern, like modern looking architecture type thing. You know what I'm saying? Like these are, and, and uh, Best from Alabama, the fulfillment center was majority African-American uh, I think it was 80% African-American and majority of them were women. So um, it's really hard to just like, uh, to just think that a lot of them would vote no if there weren't other factors involved. Um, and, you know, there's going to be a re-vote, uh, a re recount, a re-vote, an, anal uh, an, uh, an analysis of what actually happened because there are reports saying that like they put fake um, post office mail uh, mailboxes so that votes weren't counted there were like there were um uh votes discredited because maybe someone didn't put their like id in or something like that and so there's probably going to be a recount a revote, something like that but uh i would actually you know a lot of people consider it a loss but i would actually consider it like sort of a, a uh a win um because there are so many there are so many labor um labor unions that are that are trying to to start up and um, I'm not gonna lie. This is a 
this is a big step, you know, just to think that uh, Amazon, which is the largest corporation in the United States, would had to fight tooth and nail. You know, they said, yeah, they, had, they were they neck had, and neck. Yeah, they were, they hired a consultant and they paid him like fifty thousand every day, fifty thousand dollars every day. He was a notorious union buster during the Ronald Reagan era. He utilized um, tactics like this is what they did basically. They, they made mandatory meetings for all the Amazon workers on um, these, they, these sorts of things or like they kind of just scared you and you, you couldn't say a word in these meetings. You kind of just had to sit there and take it for like hours upon hours and them just spewing propaganda and like basically trying to indoctrinate you with these sorts of things. And if you raised your hand and like spoke out against it, they would just kick you out of the meeting and you would have to come back the next day. You know, they would kick you out of the meeting. They would tell you to clock out. You would have to come back the next day and go through it again basically um and uh, i don't know like it's just you know these scare tactics these scare tactics and everything you know while it may seem scary it actually shows a form of weakness because you know i i don't know like unions can be i'm sorry for interrupting but unions can be like incredibly powerful if they are operating um as they were like after post-industrialization and mid 1900s um obviously you can get higher wages you can vie for better working conditions and all those types of things and america has a pretty embarrassing history of union busting you talk about the pinkertons you talk about um it during industrialization is a whole different conversation that i'm not even fully fully versed in but it's it's really heinous the stuff that they've done i'm i'm sure that there was there are actual like many conflicts, almost like wars yeah. that have occurred because of this stuff, yeah. because businesses have tried the absolute best to make sure that people don't unionize so they can, you know, profit as much as they can. I mean, um, you know, unions in and, of, in and of itself, I think you brought up this term in the beginning of the, uh, the podcast is called anarcho syndicalism. Those are, um, that is a foundation of anarcho syndicalism thinking that, um, unions um it's thinking of like a society where um a collection of uh like revolutionary industrial unions could like um uh, allow workers to control the means of production and the economy and like uh, control influence you know obviously uh, we're not at that point at all in, the, in our society current society but um these sorts of uh stands against um uh, against who is now uh, the richest man in the world with, I don't know, 200 something billion dollars, something insane like that. You know, just to think of a, of a fulfillment center in, in Alabama of all places, you know, just taking a stand against, against him and against Amazon, um, which is one of the largest corporations in the U.S. Uh, it's insane to think about how much fear that's, that, um, that's struck into the, into the hearts of the, of the uh, executives at Amazon and maybe across the country of all of all of these corporations because you know uh, revolution can spread like wildfire even if it's just a unionization vote um, there are already reports of uh, like unionization votes uh, across the country I, I don't know specifically um, like what's going on but I know that um, uh, there are certain news publications that are trying to um, unionize. Um, I, I don't know the publication specifically, but uh, those were 
inspired by the Bessemer, Alabama um, Film Center. Um, and it's just, it's good to see um, these sorts of organization. And, um, you know, I, I believe that once the recount happens, if this if this goes to another election, I think um, the folks at uh, in Bessemer will uh, reign victorious. I wanted to ask you about corporations and their their influence in politics one more time and just to ask you like some people have i've seen some people suggest because of you know the power of uh their bribery and the, the money and they everything that they have is um and what they can do in politics is essentially we've hit a point of capitalism that's late stage as i'm sure you've often heard and democracy as we know it is either gone or um in danger uh, so long as they continue to grow power. Do you think right now uh, with the power that corporations have in influencing elections that we exist in a, in a democracy? Um, uh, to put it frank, quite frank, um, no, I, I don't think we operate right now. I don't think we operate in a functional democracy. Um, <clears throat> I did this for my political ideology class last semester, but, Basically, the question was, <clears throat> do you think the United States is an oligarchy and why? Um, you know, and I would say that we are operating in an oligarchy um, just because, you know, when you think of an oligarchy, a lot of people tend to think of just a group of people, a group of um, powerful people that uh, control everything, uh, control all, all the arms of the military, all of the uh, industries. Um, but when you really think about it, I mean, that's kind of what's happening. Uh, I mean, these instead of thinking of politicians of these in, in these groups of people, you just think of the executives of these companies. Um, you have the Walton family, who are the founders of Walmart, or the CEOs of Walmart, uh, the Bezos, uh, Bezos, CEO of Amazon, uh, Google, Sergey Brin, and uh, Larry Page. You know, you got um, uh, Tim Koch at Apple. Um, these companies have massive amounts of influence. Um, there's no sort of antitrust um, initiatives taken up like we had in the New Deal era. No efforts to split these companies up because, you know, it, companies like Amazon, um, like from a, from a naked point of view, you don't, you don't really know like what you can split up. But the fact that Amazon can be can have Amazon Web Services, which is basically the backbone for a lot of these internet, or for, for like much of the internet now. And they can also have uh, a retail uh, giant, can, can also be a retail giant. It's kind of insane. You know, there are initiatives from progressive groups that say they want to split up Amazon. They want to nationalize Amazon. They want to tax Amazon. You know, these are all initiatives that need to be looked at because um, we are not functioning in a democracy um, if our politicians are listening to their contributors, to their largest contributors over the people they're supposed to represent. I mean, it's, it's actually insane where um, you can't access your local uh, representative, maybe even here in Maryland, if, if, you're, if you're unlucky, you, can, you probably can't you know, access your, your local representative. There's a representative, Steffi Hoyer, who is the number two um, to Nancy Pelosi in the House of Representatives. Um, he's actually going against Michaela Wilkes, who who unfortunately lost last time around in 2020. 
however she's going again in 2022. Um, she's trying to, you know, go after her seat. Uh, just in the inspiration of people like AOC, Rashida Tlaib, Ahan Omar in 2018, just like they did. Um, you know, it's really, uh, and, and her, her um, basic argument is that you can't access Steny Hoyer because he's going to be listening to his um, contributors rather than his local community. And that's, that's uh, evident for a lot of these representatives. Um, you know, it can happen in red states and it can happen in blue states. It's just a, it's a national wide phenomenon, a national wide disease, I would say, where um, um, basically corporations are, are uh, puppeteering these politicians around and, um, and that's dangerous, you know, um, because these politicians have the power to go to war, to affect millions of lives across the globe. And we haven't really talked about the, um, the effects that the United States has had abroad, but, um, you know, we went to war um, I, well, actually, uh, I'm going to talk about uh, Biden recently talked about um, uh, <clears throat> bringing back all the troops from Afghanistan after 20 years since the 9-11 um, attacks, you know, uh, he's planning on bringing them back by September 11th, 2021. Um, you know, and when you really think about why we went to war in Afghanistan and why we were still there, the reason why we went to war in Afghanistan is because we were looking for Osama bin Laden. We killed him in 2011, and we are there still 10 years later. And, you know, that's not for, that's not a coincidence that we're still in there. That's not like an accident that we're there 10 years later. You know, it's because we have, um, we have vested interests in the Middle East, in Iraq, and um, in Afghanistan still to this day. Um, and that mainly revolves around oil and the oil companies wanting to pre protect their assets out in the Middle East. And they didn't really care how they got to him. Um, you know, we went into Iraq thinking Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. Um, after three to five years, we realized that that was all a lie. And George W. Bush uh, went in and killed, uh, there are at least a million civilians dead because of his actions. You know, personally, I think he should be tried for crimes against humanity. Um, you know, because you can't just kill a million civilians based on a lie and get away with it. Personally, uh, that's just to me. That's just uh, that's despicable. But yeah, uh, this, you got you kind of got to um, think about the the companies that were contributing to him, the the people who are really behind the scenes. You know, uh, I don't want to go too deep state. You know, conspiracy theorists, but you know these are these are well documented things that happen where corporations donate to politicians. We all know it, but we just don't understand the like the full influence and the sphere of influence and the impact that they have on these people that are supposed to represent us yeah and also with afghanistan and just our placement in the middle east in general is it's my understanding of it is it's also not something that we can take lightly when it comes comes to leaving we can't just leave immediately because obviously that'll there's obviously like dangers of leaving a power vacuum and all that type of stuff and that's not something that you want. So I, I think it's something that while it needs to be done as quickly as possible, it's something that needs to be very careful in terms of, so we don't, you know, obviously leave more damage than we found it with. You know, I would, I would challenge that point saying that um, in Afghanistan specifically, uh, I, I, I agree with your, your sentiment that we can't leave all, we can't remove all forces right now 
but the thing is the thing that we can do is remove all united states forces there are other there are other international um uh military uh like militias like the peacekeepers from the un uh the nato troops that are probably going to stay after but what we can do is bring all of our troops home from afghanistan and replace them with the un peacekeepers because historically the peacekeepers while they have a had a slightly tainted history you know they have a little bit more um efficiency and they don't really have vested interests like we do with oil in afghanistan so i think they would have more of a you know successful uh you know terms of uh making sure there's no power vacuum left and make sure uh, making sure you know they can transition into uh democracy yeah you know, i personally think that we should take all of our troops out like right now but we should uh invest in bringing peacekeepers and another international uh you know force that has accountability because frankly right now the military that we have this has no no counts of, of accountability you know, at all so that that's the only challenge I bring to your point but i do agree with your with your statement yeah yes yeah, it's, it's complicated as a whole i i still don't know as much about um America's foreign policy currently as much as I I wish I did but I guess to to bring it back here um I wanted I'm curious um in terms of mobilizing and in terms of activism um what are your what are your opinions on the action online being like I don't know you know the debate bros on Twitch and the bread tubers on YouTube and whatnot or even the guys who tweet a lot of theory and rhetoric on 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 Twitter, and then you have people who prefer direct action and you know doing on the ground things and you know knocking on doors, all that type of stuff. What are your opinions on the two and how they differ? And you know, is one better than the other? Um, personally, uh, when it comes to online activism and sorts of like mobilization through online means. You know, the internet has given us this tool that we largely saw using the Arab Spring, uh, like that that uh, was able to like mobilize um, uprisings <clears throat> in the Arab world. You know, in Iran, uh, Tunisia, the north, basically the North African Middle East region. Um, those sorts of like uh, the internet has given us this tool of mobilization with people that we don't know. You know, you don't have to spread the word through word of mouth or through poster boards or things that can be tampered with by local um, opposition. You know, you can have a free, uh, you can have a free uh, platform to voice your opinions and to meet people that think um, the same as you. Um, but you, when it comes to online activism, you have to make sure you're not crossing the line of being performative. And, um, you know, your words online can mean one thing, but how you are in real life in terms of using that online base to direct action, you know, can mean another thing. And those really have to go hand in hand if you want to be a successful like uh, organizer or a person that wants to mobilize other people like with like-minded opinions, then you have to make sure that um, uh, one isn't outweighing the other. You know, personally, I don't think that uh, I don't think that online activism can do just as much as direct action can, which um, 
and and that's simply just because of um that I I have those opinions because of the outcome of the Bernie Sanders campaign in 2020 because you know you if you just took on face value um the online popularity and the buzz around the campaign and then you look at the the end results I mean obviously you can attribute to the pandemic you know the lower voter count and things like that but you have to realize that if you're not going and knocking these doors and interacting with these communities you know they're not going to care they're, they're going to think you're that type of person that comes around every four years and spouts a bunch of lies and then uh you know guilt trip you into voting for their their candidate um uh, so that's you know that's i i prefer direct action over online activism but i see the value in um activism online but i just like i just warn people that i know that like make sure like you know these instagram stories while they're they're informative and things like that that can't be your be all end all it has to yeah. go further than that it has to you, you know you have to back up you have to walk the walk as well not just talk the talk not just say everything that's that that, that everybody wants to hear you know you have to back up your claims on what you believe in um <clears throat> for a lot of people that can mean going to uh to protests for a lot of people that can mean um joining organizations local organizations um you have to find that niche and and um and make sure you're not just being uh you know a face in the crowd uh, a person that just wants to be liked by everybody you have to make sure your opinions and how you actually feel are just and that they're heard yeah i definitely agree like the internet has sort of fooled people into thinking they're making an impact you talk about um those little black screens that popped up early in june after george floyd you want to talk about even like with we you know when people go missing on twitter when they like retweet those tweets and it's like for me when i see those it's like I feel like asking people sometimes when after they retweet retweet those tweets like would you even if you saw that person that you just retweeted in public would you even know like <laughs> like that person is like somebody you just retweeted and it's like yeah. and it, I don't know because it's, it's sort of like with what we saw with um the two shootings with Toledo and I'm forgetting what, what's the last guy's name Dante Dante Wright Dante is his Wright. name yeah, yeah and it's just a whole chain of Instagram stories and retweets about the same thing. We go over, over, over again. And then we go back to normal after a week and we focus on the next thing. And people are convinced, or at least a lot of people, and it's sort of waning now, but a lot of people are convinced that that's enough. And that's, you know, just having a conversation about it is enough. Um, but I feel like we've gotten to we've gotten a little bit better, and we've gotten to the point where um, we're doing more than just talking, and where some people are actually getting out and 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 doing what you just said, and protesting, and donating money, and sort of being diligent of what exactly they're saying, and making sure they're being heard. Right. But yeah, like I feel like still online, there's a lot of. There's a lot of influence there, and when it comes to um, getting young people further to the left, and I think with how the right is and how they 
simplify everything and they memify everything. There's an advantage that and there's a strength that they have online that's just really it concerns me. But it's mm-hmm. um obviously with gaming culture and um forums and stuff like that, it's it's way more prevalent to have right leaning beliefs than it is left leaning because it's when you think about it, it's like it's cooler. It's just it's it's for when you're a kid, like it's simpler to be like that. But there's there's an advantage, I think, to being to to being more vocal online if you are left leaning. I just want to bring up one thing. Um, you know, there <laughs> on TikTok, there's this uh, there's a user called a uh, Polo Boy. Um, this is pretty pretty big um big uh, content creator. He basically had this uh, this one basic uh, um, TikTok that just said, um, you know, how did you know I support pro choice? And then it uh, it turned the camera to a bunch of track, attractive people, and a lot of people said this was like performative and it was the bare minimum. Um, and then he like went on to clarify that like it's it's hard to um, to explain the uh, the nuances of leftism to a bunch of twelve year olds that you know are 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 are, um, are so interested in these right leaning takes and these right leaning memes and things like that. So you have to start somewhere, basically, is what he was trying to say. And that's yeah. one thing about the left that is really hard to to do is that it's hard to build a base on like um on on platforms like TikTok because it's hard to explain, you know what I'm saying? Like um things like black liberation, things like trans rights to a bunch of twelve year olds on TikTok. Like it's it's hard to do that. Where as on the right, you can just say like a racist thing and like, you know, you get a hundred thousand likes and like a lot of people are right. uh, drawn to that. And, and um, it's hard to compete, but you know, you have to, you have to, if you want to actually, um, if you want to make sure that this country is going to be left in good hands and this world is going to be left in good hands. I mean, uh, that, that's something you have to do. You know, it's hard to toe the line between being funny and being informative. There are a bunch of accounts that do that on platforms like TikTok. Um, uh, there are a lot of accounts that are trying to do that, um, you know. And instead of um, just relying on theory and, and just talking out your audience, talking like rambling on to your audience, you have to interact. You have to make sure what you're saying is funny and appealing, and like it, you have to t- you have to take a stand and, and try to make these make these kids become left-leaning before before they get sucked into the alt-right pipeline, whether that be through YouTube or, uh, you know, these forums like 4chan or, or things like that. You have to make sure you get to them first before Ben Shapiro or PragerU does. That's that's basically my take on it. I mean, <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, a battle, it's a battle for the internet, basically. That's what I yeah, I definitely agree. Conservatives own the fuck out of media. It's ridiculous and it's a lot a lot of it has to do it goes back to again corporations and the way these people are funded like when you're talking ben shapiro and prager you steven crowder all those guys are really easy mm-hmm. much easier to access than you know i don't know the the bread tubers and the guys who do a little bit more long form content that's uh, not as expensive and not as highly funded as the others um but one person who I think 
um you know we obviously people on the left we obviously had sam cedar and kyle kalinsky um uh hasanabi all those guys but it's just not nearly as one person who's really appealing is hassan obviously with his you know dude bro appearance and he's on twitch and it's good that he has such a massive influence because it's like you have people who've come from the gaming community and they see him and then he was like he was I don't I don't even want to imagine how much money he made during the election cycle during the end of the election cycle but it's <laughs> yeah, it's pulling like four, like 200k or something, 200k viewers on Twitch or something like that. Yeah, but it, it was it was really it's it's good to see stuff like that. Um especially right. considering like conservatives just run everything when it comes to um when it comes to the internet, but you you mentioned TikTok and you mentioned the sort of sort of the way a lot of leftists and a lot of further left leaning people um, like to you know give put out their ideas. It's not really in an entertaining fashion as conservatives. It's more of like in an academic way, and it's I, I can totally see how like that could be boring. Like, can you imagine like being having that explained to you like trans rights issues or anything like from <laughs> like like the sports situation with with trans with uh trans folk and yeah. that that florida bill like mm-hmm. i think i do agree with what you're saying like the left should like memify stuff more and make stuff more fun like and and, and yeah. entertaining yeah. it doesn't <laughs> it doesn't all have to be academic and yeah no yeah i definitely think uh you know if the left was able to take a to hold such a place in society like uh, the Prager News, the Ben Shapiro's of the internet, um, you know, their 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 um, influence would go up so much. Uh, I mean, there are uh, YouTube channels like the Gravel Institute, who's uh, trying to combat Prager U with their own videos on, um, you know, just everyday life. Um, uh, whether that be like, uh, they I think they had a um they they have videos on um like <clears throat> medicare for all things like that uh unionization uh how socialists can win elections um how we've been fed uh lies about capitalism um you know how socialists solve the housing crisis and th- those sorts of things like those those sorts of stories never get told um to the average person that are just making their way through life and it's really hard to access those types of information without going out to seek that. So, you know, again, like th- that's where that that's where that online activism and online presence really comes in because you can't get you can't explain those stories with direct action and direct action alone. You know, you have to have this sort of outreach online coupled with this direct with direct action as well. And um, I think um, those bread tubers uh, that you spoke about, Kyle Klinsky, Sam Cedar, um, uh, you know, um, even even Vosh does some yeah. good work, even though he's like a little bit problematic at times. He's he he says he has some good yeah. points, and I feel like he's turned a lot of people further to the left online. Yeah, I, at least I don't really I don't really agree with with, with, with Vosh and his viewpoints, but I I do appreciate you know his his uh his turning turning of his community, you know on YouTube and things like that. 
Um, you know, you have Hassan Piker, I guess Destiny kind of is more centrist liberal, but um, he has his own online presence. Those sorts of things are good when uh, it's a good sign when you see these sorts of large name, you know, recognizable faces on the internet, because it shows how much people are interested and like curious in that sort of politics. I think, um, you know, Hassan Piker was one of my, uh, you know, one of my keys to radicalization to a point, you know, during the Bernie Sanders campaign, um, it got me interested in the further left campaigns, Sam Cedar, uh, regular, regularly brought on folks like Cory Bush, like Michaela Wilkes, onto his talk show to talk about the campaign. Crystal Ball on the Hill, rising on the Hill show, Rising Sun. She now has a show with Kyle Quincy, I believe. But that also helped me, um, you know, really understand the, the the aspects, full aspects of of left wing politics in the United States. But um, you know. Online presence is key if we need to, if we, uh, if we're trying to radicalize as much people as we can. So, yeah. Yeah. Nice to have like a healthy balance. More recently, we've obviously had two, two shootings um, with Dante Wright and the Toledo kid, um, Toledo, Toledo. I'm forgetting his first name, the 13 year old kid. Um, But yeah. Adam Toledo, and I'm I'm just curious what your opinions on um, that that movement is in terms of reform or abolishment, and yeah. Um, so I want to talk about um, Dante Wright, uh, just mainly based on um, you know the the gravity of the situation. You know, um, it turned out that Dante Wright's um, former teacher was George Floyd's girlfriend, um, the black man that was uh, that was killed by Derek Chauvin um, after kneeling on his neck for nine minutes. I, it, it's just it's really hard to think of uh, think how um, how nothing has really changed in the eyes of law enforcement in this country, even after these massive protests last summer. You know, it really goes to show you um, it, it doesn't matter. Uh, how many diversity trainings, how many racial bias trainings you put these cops through. Um, uh, the, the system really tends to, it, it really, um, it, it seeks to turn these men and women who want to be police officers into uh, operatives of the state to uh, repress uh, African-Americans and uh, people of color in this country. Anybody that stands in the way of, um, of the uh, of the of the elite, basically, and I mean, uh, when you think about Dante Wright, I mean, he he had air fresheners that were blocking his rearview mirror. He had a warrant on his name when they ran his plates. That's what that's what came up. So they approached his car, guns or with hands on guns, and apparently this 25-year veteran of the police force. Um, Mistook, mistook her um uh, her gun uh, her her taser for a gun and she apparently yelled taser while shooting her gun twice um after the first shot i believe dante wright uh, was driving away and they fired multiple times um into the back of the car uh, i don't know if he was killed from that first shot or from whatever it was after but um to think that a 25 year old 25 year veteran would 
make a rookie mistake like that and that would lead to the death of an innocent man, uh, an innocent African-American man. Uh, it's just, it just goes to show you that, um, you know, it doesn't matter how long, doesn't matter how many trainings you go through, doesn't matter, um, you know, how much good you're trying to do when you become a cop. Um, at the end of the day, you know, you're going to be fighting for someone else's interests if you're a cop. Not your own, not, not your communities. Um, and I want to go uh, connect this to Adam Toledo's um, case as well. Uh, this was a 13-year-old child. This was not a man. This was not a, a gang. This is not a gang member. Um, this was a child. This was like me and you. Um, he was chased by a cop down a dark alley. Um, the cop said, turn around, show me your hands. Adam Toledo had a flashlight in his face, put his hands up and was shot in the chest. And he was killed on impact. Um, that was a child. And uh, to think that the mayor of Chicago, Lori Lightfoot, could see this video and say that we wish for, or we want peace in the, in the city. That's, that's what she said in that press conference. She knew about the video. She knew about the body cam footage. When Adam Toledo was shot, the prosecutors didn't even, uh, or not the prosecutors, the prosecutors and the police force um, didn't even tell his mother because his mother, um, this happened on March 29th, 2021. Uh, and his mother um, uh, filed a missing persons report for Adam Toledo. And he was missing for two days until she went to the precinct. And they wouldn't even, uh, that is when they told her, they finally told her that he was shot and killed. And they want, they spread a narrative about him that he was a gang member, that he had a gun. And as we all saw, I don't know if you saw, but in that video, there was no gun. This little, this little Hispanic boy had his hands up when the cops had put, show me your hands, and he was shot. And, um, you know, again, it does not matter how much trainings you put these cops through a, a pig is going to be a pig. I'm sorry. Um, you know, and the only way you can uh, really solve this is through defunding the police and reinvesting it in the black and brown communities, which has been the talking point since last summer, but has largely been glossed over, or abolition, which is ab abolishing the police force, which um, Minneapolis almost did, but, um, you know, they didn't really follow through on that after George Floyd's killing. You know, they had that vote on uh, disassembling their police force and that never happened. And now we have things like that happened in Brooklyn Park in Minnesota. Uh, that was, I'm pretty sure it's pretty close to Minneapolis. Um, and then you have things like the notorious Chicago police force, which it operates like a, uh, like a, like a mob, basically, like the mobs of Chicago. Um, you know, it's it's really hard. I, I I don't know. It's really hard for these families to 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 hear these families' cries, to hear these families' screams for justice. Justice is those those boys and girls going back home and seeing their family one last time. That is justice. These families will never get justice of seeing their their children again, or these their loved ones again. So what we have to do now is reconciliation. We have to, to um, you know, to make sure that their lives did not go in vain. 
and actually uh, follow up and hold these people accountable like Lori Lightfoot in, in Chicago, the mayor of Chicago, and like in Minnesota, like in uh, Baltimore, DC, wherever, because these happen every, this ha this, these things happen in every single city. Uh, like Freddie, Freddie Gray, Anton Black, uh, these sorts of things happen all the time. And, you know, they can't be, they can't be glossed over. You know, Black Lives Matter was a movement that did not start in 2020, you know? It started in 2016 uh, with the killing of uh, Michael Brown, or um, I believe it started even before then, but, um, you know, in Ferguson, Missouri, that's, you know, that's where it really got its, uh, its, its start. And it was labeled as, uh, as like terrorist organizations by so many people for liberals and conservatives alike. Um, you know, in Freddie, Freddie Gray's case, um, you know, where Baltimore was, uh, was rioting, um, you know, you had President Obama calling the people who were outraged thugs and, you know, because of a, a burned down CBS or something. And, um, you know, this is not, this is not a, a, a recent issue. Uh, this was the reason why Colin Kaepernick took his knee. Uh, this is the reason why he was berated and blackballed four, four or five years ago um, because of the same issue, these same issues. And that's why he's uh, still continuing this fight today. And, um, uh, you know, you really have to uh, realize that um, with the, um, the popularization of the Black Lives Matter movement in the past five years, to where I believe a lot of people were able to get behind it last year, um, more people than I have ever seen, you know, in my lifetime personally. Um, you have to you have to make sure that those values of black liberation and reconciliation and justice um, never leave your sight um, as an organizer in that Black Lives Matter movement and as regular people like you and I. You know, you can't just be satisfied with the status quo as i said earlier i mean you have to push for more i mean that's where i'm at with with um uh with these these murders um uh, by the uh from these cops and you know uh, justice has to be served whether that's uh through defunding or abolition i mean we gotta get somewhere so yeah how do you feel about the the abolition movement is that something that you feel is um viable or i certainly think it's viable um whether that be through democratic means i do not know i mean you know city councils those sorts of city politics those go beyond um like what i really understand um but i do think it can be possible i mean just with abolition, you know, my understanding of it came last summer, just to think of, um, you know, community policing, um, because uh, you think about when the New York Police Department went on strike, um, you know, a couple of years ago, crime went down for those months, which is an insane thing to think about. You know, you have these police officers that are not patrolling, that are not harassing black and brown people, that are not stopping and frisking people in Times Square, uh, stopping and frisking black and brown people, and crime somehow goes down. So you kind of have to think about um, what are the police supposed to do? You know, a lot of people, when they hear of abolition, uh, police abolition, you're going to think of, like, well, if, if the police aren't there, who are you going to call when someone robs you? Uh, you know, 
police by the time the police show up the robber will already think of if they want to kill you or not you know especially if you live in a, a, a black neighborhood or a, a people of color uh predominantly a person of color neighborhood they're going to arrive way later than if it was a white neighborhood so like that robber will already have all the power in his hands if in their hands if they want to kill you or not and um the majority of people who go through these sorts of life-threatening situations 45 percent of people, only 45% of people who go through these situations call the police. So that's the majority of people who don't even call the police to begin with. And that's because of, you know, um, the, 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 the failure to de-escalate situations that can end in, in, in situations where innocent people are getting killed by the police. Because, you know, they, they truly don't understand how to handle these situations. And that's really where you think about it. You know, you, you can't be, uh, when you think of uh, people not wanting to call or people calling the cops on people with mental illnesses and uh, disabilities and depression and suicidal thoughts and why a lot of these people are getting killed with uh, with neurodivergence um, talking about like autism um, you know depression those sorts of things and you know uh, the police officers show up to the scene and they don't know how to deal with the situation because they've never been trained to do that all they know is how to respond to crime not prevent it and you know, police are never involved or have never been in the business of preventing crime. They've been in the business to responding to crime. And you know, when it comes to prison or uh, police abolition, um, which is heavily tied to prison abolition, if we could talk about that soon. But um, you know, you got to think about um, like how communities uh, would be able to engage in community policing in um, you know, accountability boards, um, even if uh, uh, abolition, uh, prison, or police abolition ties into defunding the police as well, because, you know, they, they, they revolve around um, policing the police and holding the police accountable, which is something we don't have in this country. We don't have citizen, citizen run police boards that look over every single incident that police go through of police misconduct, you know, because these things get swept under the rug whether that be through like murders like this, because you know this uh, this murder of Adam Toledo happened March 29th and it is it is April 17th. Uh, those two weeks, um, those two weeks that passed by were two weeks of spreading in misinformation about this 13 year old kid and about how they were saying he had a gun, how he was tied to gangs, about all of these you know uh, horrible things about this kid and. <clears throat> When you really get down to the root cause, like I do think that police abolition could happen in this country. Maybe not right now, maybe not through democratic means, but um, I do believe that defunding the police could happen and should happen in this country. That, that's where I'm at right now. But, you know. Yeah, and I think uh, my thoughts on it um, personally um, with I think the Overton window we're at right now is people are pretty much people, a lot of people are apprehensive to the idea of defunding the police. But I feel like at least in our demographic, we pretty much agree that that's a that's a viable option. But, you know, right. older people, boomers and such, um, they're completely against the idea of defunding the police. But they're more so they're leaning more on the side of reform. Um, and that's become a bigger conversation. Um, but I feel like if I feel like that's fine, because 
eventually they're going to realize um, reform won't work. And then we can start like having real conversations about defunding the police and then maybe abolition after that. But I think the key to this will be, you know, trying to push for reform just to show people that it's not going to work. Like it's like you were saying, you you can put and talk about you can have them talk about race or whatever. And, you know, these uh, literacy meetings or whatever. And it's it just doesn't matter. Like like you were saying, like they're they're working for a more a, a political apparatus that is it's not about them as individuals that's the problem it's it's the institution as a whole yeah. um but yeah we can talk about um prison abolition um because that's i, I didn't have that on my notes but that's i'm curious what, to hear what you have to say about that because that's also something that's you know come to a lot of conversation that has been in the conversation of politics for for a little while but it hasn't sort of been brought up by um you know politicians and i haven't even heard the squad or anyone talk about it too much right i mean prison abolition is more of a radical a radical point of view on how we um seek to correct and punish individuals that commit crime in our country um but at the end of the day you have to start thinking about um who is really populating these prisons? Largely, a lot of them are African-American males who are charged with nonviolent crimes, whether that be through drug offenses or other things. And it's really concerning to see um, uh, these marijuana companies that are being, um, uh, being sprung forward in these, in these new uh, states that have legalized recreational marijuana. And they are able to operate um, their businesses, um, just like uh, uh, like like these thousands and thousands of, of, of black men have been locked up, um, well, like they haven't been locked up, right? Um, and it's it's really concerning to see when you uh, think about um, uh, how we have uh, you know demonized nonviolent crime in this country, whether that be through drug offenses or other things like you do not have to um, incarcerate people because they made a mistake in their lifetime on uh, whether that be through drugs or, or other things. Like you have cases of drug abuses where um, they're locked up on a first time offense, maybe a second time offense. Um, and, and what a lot of people think of, especially from uh, like a, a more radical point of view is uh, things like in Portugal, and I believe they did it in Oregon too, where they legalized or they, they decriminalized all drugs, and um, so you wouldn't go to jail if you had those drugs, but you'll be placed in rehabilitation. And I think that's that's the main thing that um, that's that's one of the main points that a lot of people who are um, interested in prison abolition they want to they want to focus on rehabilitation, not in incarceration, and. Um, Yep. You know, we have the most, right. And, you know, we have the most percentage of our population in jail in the, in the world. The United States has the most portion of our population in jail. Um, and a, a lot of them are through nonviolent crimes. I mean, like uh, when you, and when you think, when you think about the statistics that, you know, um, uh, that these conservatives bring up about, um, you know, 13% of the population. I don't even want to, you know, spout their, their hateful <laughs> rhetoric, but uh, like 
when uh, when you think about the statistics that lead to that, which is over over policing of, uh, of of neighborhoods and um, you know uh, false convictions and wrong uh, wrongful convictions and uh, lack of legal representation, these are all factors that lead that 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 are causes of these incarcerated populations and. When it comes to prison abolition, um, these large groups of people, they want to see a, a different form of correction because what we're having, what we have right now is not correction. And what, uh, like, uh, what, what, what uh, prison abolition uh, groups want to point to is the 13th, 13th Amendment, which outlawed slavery except for punishment of a crime. And what's happening in our prisons right now is that essentially it's prison labor or slave labor where they're getting paid a dollar twenty or a couple of cents an hour um, to do these horrible, uh, unjustifiable things, which like uh, with the wildfires in California that happened, they used prison labor, they used incarcerated people, they barely put them in the protectable um, equipment, and they, they they put them out there to fight those California fires, getting paid a buck twenty an hour maybe. I mean, you can look these these uh, these these articles up that happened, but it's just um, it's reprehensible what we've done in this country. I mean, the Thirteenth Amendment has basically allowed slave labor to still take place in our country as long as you may have uh, had a drug offense in your in your in your lifetime, or you know, because not every single person that goes to jail is a murderer or a rapist or all of that. You know, a lot of these people just went through a bad spell in their life and made a mistake. And instead of correcting them and rehabilitating them and preparing them to re uh, go uh, to go back into our society, they are now labeled as ex-cons. They are now um, being torn and broken in our prisons, and you know it's going to take a large um, mobilization of people to. Um, really combat these private prisons that are not in it for corrections, they're in it for profits. And these for-profit prisons are run for, like a business, basically. And they're run on the backs of black bodies, just like um, plantations were in the 16, 17, and 1800s. And it's, 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 it's reprehensible, honestly. I mean, you know. Yeah, and you, you talked about, like, obviously these people are going to prison as a product of their economic conditions as well it's it's not just a mistake that they made it's it's often a product of the influences and or the lack thereof um in the the communities the harsh communities that are inevitably a product of hundreds of years of racism and then followed by hundreds of years of, of slavery followed by jim crow followed by systemic racism and and we've sort of you know they be, become criminals because that's like the only way to make money because there's no real way to make money with the lack of jobs available in the area and the poor education that's given in the area and then you know they sort of turn to crimes the drug war all that stuff and you know do you do those types of things you go to you go to jail you you get out and now it's it's harder to get a job now and then it's yeah, it's, it's a whole it's a whole situation there. and i think the the key to getting people out of jail is um sort of uplifting these communities and um you know properly getting them the education and the funding that they need to 
become safer places for everyone. Um, but obviously police um, defunding, that whole process that we were talking about before is integral as well, but it's it, it, it definitely starts at the root, and I feel like the root of the problem is obviously the aftermath and the ongoing results of systemic racism. I think we've been at this for quite a while. Um, it's, unless the, it, it's been like an hour and, and what, 30 minutes? Um, unless yeah. you have something else you want to talk about, I we can... Um, I mean, no, I, I don't really have anything else to talk about. I just want to, uh, you know, for the people listening, you know, we, uh, I just want to say that, um, you know, it may seem scary if you're trying to get into you know, left-leaning or left-wing politics. It may seem scary at first. Um, it may seem confusing, but, you know, my my best advice, if, if, if there is anybody, anybody listening that wants to get more involved with their local community or, like, politics in a, in, in a general sense, um, it's just to, uh, to really, like, my, like, it really depends on the person, but I would suggest, like, you know, following people or listening to people that have different viewpoints on things and really coming up with your own opinions and your morals and fundamentals that, that you can base your politics on, you know, um, don't be like the, don't be like the crowd of people, you know, have your own set morals that you can stand on and, uh, you know, and then read theory, read, read books by, uh, by, uh, by people who have outlasted you know the the horrors of history uh and and read books and and uh, get involved with your local community and campaigns and things like that and and research people who actually want to make a change um for people and uh i think that's the best course of action to actually you know really understanding uh who you are as a person and, and politics in general yeah i agree it's definitely like it's definitely key to you know obviously the assumption is if you're online if you have social media accounts you're consuming the news around you um the key is interpreting it in a proper manner and in order to interpret it properly you have to educate yourself and that does involve reading whether that's theory whether that's you know just research papers you know it's 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 uh, it's all important so i definitely agree but you know, thanks you for for coming on the podcast, Mark. Um, thank you for talking thank about all this stuff. Yeah, and yes, that is the end of the the podcast. Thank you for listening. If you made it all the way through, but this was a definitely a, a deviation from what I normally do. But I'm glad I had this conversation.